I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Where in just a few moments I'd like to read a passage of Scripture that will be the foundation for this morning's message. This story happened a few years ago on Labor Day weekend. There were two families that lived across the street from each other. Let's call them the Smiths and the Browns. Now, these families were best friends. When I say they were best friends, they were really remarkable in that the husbands were best friends, the wives were best friends, and the children played together more like cousins than across the street neighbors. In fact, The moms once told me that they had long since given up on wondering who was going to eat where, that when meals were served in either house, whichever children were in the house at that time just came to the table. These two families, the Smiths and the Browns, were the best of friends. On Friday of Labor Day weekend, Mr. Brown brought home a go-kart. Now, I needed some work, and so that evening and all day Saturday, Mr. Brown and Mr. Smith spent reconditioning this go-kart and promising the children that on Monday, after they had their joint family Memorial Day picnic and party at noontime, they'd spend the afternoon racing that go-kart up and down the street. And that's exactly what happened. On Monday, the families got together. They made a big feast. They celebrated Labor Day as they did many holidays together. And then afterwards went out in the street and the children took turns taking the go-kart up and down the street, everyone having a good time. And then the Smith boy got in the go-kart, took off down the street. No one's sure what happened, but by some means the accelerator lodged open And he drove that go-kart at head height into the back of a large pickup parked on the street. Now, the carnage was so great, I really can't appropriately describe it in a service like this. After 911 was called and everyone uh, had gone home from that, the Smiths called me. They said, Coach Jeff, you see, I didn't know these families as their pastor. I knew these families as their Little League coach. I had just finished a season coaching both those boys in Little League. Now, Noe, invite me back sometime, and I'll talk about what it means to really engage your community with the gospel as a Little League coach. But this morning, they called me and said, Coach Jeff, can you help us? And they told me what had happened. I got in the car and went to the Smith's home and did pastoral ministry with them, helping them understand what the, uh, and work through the trauma of seeing their child killed in front of their eyes on that street and worked with them and started thinking about a memorial service they wanted to have the following Thursday. On Tuesday morning, I went back to their house, and in the context of visiting with them, I asked this question, have you talked to the Browns? They said no. They went into their house and closed the door, and we've called, but no one answers, and we don't see any sign of life really but we haven't spoken with them. So I worked with the Smiths on Tuesday, and on Wednesday I went back to work with them again in preparation for the service the following day. And after talking with them for a while, I asked the question, have you talked to the Browns? 
No, they said, we've called, they don't answer, we see no sign of life over there. So in a moment of sort of pastoral courage, I said, come with me. And we walked out of their house and across the street and started pounding on the Browns' door. At first, there was no sign of life, no indication that anyone would come to the door, but I can be a fairly insistent person when I need to be. (laughs) And so I just kept pounding on that door until finally it cracked open. And I said, hey, this is Coach Jeff from Little League. And I know what happened, and I'm here with the Smiths, and we'd like to talk with you. Mr. Brown looked out that little crack in the door, and then he closed the door, and a few seconds later, he opened it. We walked into their living room, and his wife was laying there on a couch, and the children were all around, and they were all under blankets, and there was evidence of some food sitting around, and by the smell of the room, it was clear no one had left that room for three days totally overwhelmed by their grief and the trauma of what they had seen. And as we walked in, Mr. Smith said this, and I almost can quote it. He said, we need you guys. We're not going to make it through this if we don't make it through it together. It's not your fault what happened. It's not my fault. We'll never know what really happened. It's not anyone's fault. But we have to make it through this together. And he threw his arms around Mr. Brown, and Brown threw his arms around Mr. Smith. And these men stood there in that living room shaking with sobs as they held on to each other in their grief and trauma. And then their wives got up and grabbed onto those fellows. And the four of them were standing there in a mob, in a little huddle, hugging, crying. And the children all started scrambling out from under blankets and coming in off the porch, and they formed a mob around their parents. And the whole group just stood there sobbing and holding on to each other in that moment. And in one of the few times in my life I had the good sense not to say anything, I just faded into the shadows, and I thought this, and I still think it today. This is the greatest demonstration of forgiveness that I have ever seen. And I stand here this morning saying to you, church, the very same thing. That is still the greatest demonstration of forgiveness that I have ever seen. In this story, this story illustrates the power of forgiveness. And I want to preach about that to you this morning and help you understand what it means to forgive in the way I've just described in this story. Now, to do that, I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus addresses the issue of forgiveness by using a parable to make some points. Let's read what Jesus had to say, starting in Matthew 18 at verse 23. Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now the rest of this message falls into two simple parts. The first part is this. The the parable teaches we need forgiveness. Would you say that with me? We need forgiveness. Would you say it one more time? We need forgiveness. Now, in this parable, God is the master, and we are the servant who owes so much. How much was owed? Well, you notice in verse 24 it says, he owed 10,000 talents. Now, let me tell you how much money that is. Back in the day, one day's wages was a denarii, a denarii or a denarius. 600 denarii equals one talent, and this man owed 10,000 talents. Now, I did the math for you. This man owed over 16,000 years in back wages to the master. Now, some of you business people are thinking, how did anybody let anything get that far out of hand? Okay, now, wait a minute now, wait a minute now. This is a parable. It's a story Jesus made up to make a point. It's full of what's called hyperbole, which is exaggeration to make a point. And so Jesus is using a ridiculously high number to communicate a great truth. This man owed 16,000 years back wages. He was never, ever going to be able to repay what he owed the master. That's what Jesus is trying to say. And so in this parable, the master is God and we are the servant who is so indebted that we can't do anything about our problem. Listen, my friends, this is us in relationship with God. We have so much guilt in our lives in relationship to God and His standards, and there's simply nothing that we can do about it. And if that were the only message I had for you this morning, that would be a message of hopelessness. But the good news is, just like in this story, forgiveness from God is possible. But here's our reality we live with today. The reality we live with today is people want to deny the reality of guilt, deny guilt as an experience, and somehow pretend that guilt does not exist. We do this by trying to redefine two different concepts in our world. First of all, we try to redefine God. In this parable, God is presented as a holy master who has standards that must be met. And my friends, I remind you this morning, God is holy. We try to amend that in some ways to make God a little less holy or a little less other and tone Him down so that we don't have to deal with Him as He really is. Here's how we do that. We say things like, well, God is my higher power. 
a nondescript definition of some spiritual being. We bring God down a notch by calling him just that. Or we'll say, well, God is just the man upstairs, and he and I have a good relationship. Again, trying to bring God down to a level that we can define. Or we imagine God as a wizened grandfather, you know, a fellow with a long beard, with a happy, uh, with a, with a, a, a happy kind of face that is vi- warm and inviting and maybe has a, a, a shepherd's staff that he holds in heaven and just sort of looks out over us. You tracking with me this morning? We try to redefine God and make him less holy in order to do something about the guilt that we feel. But there's another thing we try to redefine, and that is in our world today, we try to redefine sin so there's no sin problem, so therefore there's no real guilt. What God, uh, what, what's hard for many people to accept in our world today is that the Bible says some things are right and some things are wrong. Now, you may say, well, I know that, but you know, there's a lot of gray area in, in the world today and a lot of gray area that has to be sorted out. And listen, I'll give you that. There's definitely gray area things that have to be sorted out. Is this really right or is this really wrong? But let me remind you that while there's always some gray area that has to be discussed and figured out and settled out in terms of pastoral leadership and counsel, I get that. Let me also remind you that there is something called the Ten Commandments. And those things are pretty clear, aren't they? that there's just some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Now, here's what the Bible says. God is holy and we're not because we struggle with those right and wrong issues and quite frankly come up on the wrong side a lot of the time. Now, let me again say, (coughs) pardon me, let me again say, this doesn't mean that everyone's as bad as they can be all the time. But it does mean that no matter how hard we try, have you noticed this? No matter how hard we try, we tend to come up short so much of the time. Now, I know some of you that are younger are thinking, well, that's not what I've been taught. I've been taught that I have self-esteem and that I'm basically good. And if I just try harder, I'll be able to live a life that's without these kinds of things you're describing as sin. Well, let me tell you, those of us who've been living for a while will assure you that that will not work. (laughs) It just will not work. The longer you live, the more frustrated you're going to be because the more you'll discover that no matter how hard you try, you just don't come up to the standards, even those laid out in the Ten Commandments, the standards that God has for life. Now again, if this were my only message, it would be a message without hope. But here's the good news. God is holy and you're not. And the gap between your, 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 but the, the gap between God's holiness and your life is what's called sin, the shortcomings, the falling short that we have in relationship with God. But here is the good news for you this morning. God has made the solution. The solution is available in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and the solution is He will forgive you. He will forgive you. You don't have to redefine God or try to dumb him down in some way to make him a less threatening holy God that he really is. You don't have to redefine your sinful behavior in such a way that you explain it away by some psychobabble or some psychological uh, uh, process. No, let's just go with simplicity this morning. God is holy. We're not. The gap between us is labeled sin, and God has made the solution possible. Forgiveness that he grants to every one of us who will ask him for it. And so this morning, we need forgiveness, right? So if you've come this morning burdened down with a load of guilt, you feel shame, you feel inadequacy, you feel like you don't measure up, 
uh, you feel beaten down and broken and you feel like life is barely worth living, I have good news for you this morning. Come to God through Jesus Christ, ask Him for forgiveness, and be liberated this morning. I listened to the singing this morning and all the songs related to being released from shackles, having passed forgiven, being broken from uh, the power of sin. And as those songs were being sung, I thought, how many in this room can sing that and celebrate, but how many are standing there wondering, what are these songs really about? If you're in that category this morning of wondering what those songs are really about, I'm trying to describe it to you right now. Those songs are about being forgiven, about being set free, about having all of your sins set aside by God who will come into your life and say, I forgive you. Even if your debt is 16,000 years of back salary like in this parable, I forgive you. That's good news this morning. That's good news this morning. (coughs) Now that's the easy part of the sermon. Now let's go to the second part. We must forgive others. Say that with me. We must forgive others. Say it one more time. We must forgive others. You see, the first part of the parable is God forgiving, or the uh, the parable is the master forgiving the servant. And the first part of the message is God will forgive you. Man, that's good news, isn't it? But then the second part of the parable is that once we've been forgiven... We have a responsibility to forgive others. Now in this story, or in this parable, you see what happened. This man who'd been forgiven called in someone who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about three months' wages. That's a manageable debt that could be paid off in a reasonable amount of time. But did he extend any forgiveness to this man? No. He grabbed him and choked him and said, pay what you owe. And then the master found out about it. And the consequences of his unforgiveness toward the one who owed him money were greater than the penalty he would have paid had he been imprisoned on his own from the beginning. In other words, when you refuse to forgive, the consequences are devastating in your life. Now let's talk about what it means to forgive others. First, when we forgive others, we must forgive others as God has forgiven us. This means, first of all, that we forgive when our offenders do not deserve it. Now, this morning, when I talk about forgiving others, I'm not talking about forgiving people who cut you off in traffic. I'm talking about forgiving the man who date-raped you in college and got away with it. I'm talking about forgiving uh, forgiving the uncle who touched you inappropriately as a child and you've borne those scars all your life. I'm talking about your ex-wife who got the kids and the money when she divorced you and left you for another man. I'm talking about the business partner who stabbed you in the back and took the company. He made a mint out of it. You had to start over with nothing. That's who I'm talking about has to be forgiven this morning. Not incidental people who cut you off in traffic but real people who've hurt you in ways that have scarred you for life. Alcoholic parents who didn't give you the love and security and upbringing that you needed. Critical in-laws who've significantly harmed and hampered your marriage because of the negative things they've said about you over the years. 
children that you poured your lives into who've risen up and rebelled against you and made your life miserable by the money they've taken from you and the time they've cost you lying awake night worrying about them. These are the kind of issues I'm talking about this morning. When I say we have a responsibility to forgive others who don't deserve it, who've really wronged us, and who've hurt us in ways that have had a profound impact in our lives, perhaps even over a lifetime. Forgiving like God forgives means we forgive people who don't deserve it, but it also means we forgive people completely. Now, I had an experience once that helped me understand this. I did something wrong while I was a pastor against a couple in our church. Let's don't go into what I did, but let's just leave it at that. I was wrong, okay? And it took me about three weeks to figure out that I was wrong, but finally I had to admit that I was wrong. So I went to their house, and I said, I've come over to ask you to forgive me and to admit that what I did did was wrong and to tell you that I'm sorry. And they said, well, we'll forgive you. And then they said this, but while it's easy to forgive, it is not so easy to forget. Well, I think that was missing the point just a little bit, don't you? (laughs) I was there trying to put this incident behind us. They were saying, we might check the box that you've been here and asked us to forgive you, but we're going to hold on to it for a while and just see how we can use it to leverage this relationship against you. You know, God doesn't forgive that way. There's another verse in the Bible that says God places, when God forgives us, there's a verse in the Bible that says God puts our sin as far as the east is from the, oh, some of you know that verse, right, okay. God moves our sin as far as the east is from the, and that, my friends, is a long way. What that verse is trying to tell us is this, when God forgives us, he forgives completely. It's put aside, it's over, and it's not held on to any longer. And then there's one more thing. And that is when God forgives, God forgives lavishly. You know, in my wife's kitchen, she's got this one drawer, and it's got these cooking utensils in it. And it's got a whole uh, little plastic tub of measuring spoons. You can fish around in there and find just about anything. And I fished around in there one day, and I found one that was a quarter teaspoon. That's like an eyedropper. (laughs) Just a little touch. Now, here's how some of you want to give out forgiveness. That's all you get. You get a little bit. That's all you get. I know what you did to me, you scoundrel. I know how you hurt me. I know what you've, how you wronged me. I know what that cost me in your life. Preacher says I'm supposed to forgive you like God forgives you. Well, I'm going to give you just a little touch. Just a quarter teaspoon, that's all you get. You see, that's how we want to give out forgiveness is a quarter teaspoon at a time. Let me, tell, let me tell you how God gives out forgiveness. God has a giant ladle in each hand and a big vat of forgiveness on both sides. And he dips in, and he brings out a ladle just dripping on all sides, and he pours it on you and says, now that's what forgiveness looks like. And then he backs up and dips it again just to make sure he got you totally all the way covered. You know what I'm saying? God forgives lavishly. He pours it on. He doesn't come along with a quarter teaspoon and just drip, drip, drip. Not like you and I want to do. So listen now. 
When we forgive people who've wronged us, and I've already told you the kinds of relationships I'm talking about this morning, I won't repeat. When we have people, forgive people who've really wronged us, we have to forgive them when they don't deserve it and forgive them completely and com- forgive them lavishly. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, wait just a minute. If I forgive people like that, that means they get away with hurting me. They get away with things they shouldn't get away with. They need to be held responsible for what they've done. Well, this may surprise you, but I agree with you completely. They are to be held responsible for what they've done, but not by you. But not by you. Forgiveness says, I will let God and others handle the consequences. My responsibility is to pour out forgiveness and release my right to revenge in this relationship. Now think about that phrase just a minute. We're responsible to forgive, allowing God and others to control and bring about whatever consequences may need to be produced. But we instead release, and I love this phrase, release the right to revenge in the relationship. What that means is we don't lie awake at night anymore thinking about how we're going to get even. We don't drive in the car and realize we've missed two exits because our mind is on somebody we'd like to get back at. We don't find ourselves losing sleep and productivity at work and quality time in relationships because we're preoccupied with what happened to us in the past. We release all of that because we release the right to take revenge in a relationship. We no longer have the right to get even. I preached this message once, and uh, not this exact message, but a similar message on forgiveness. And a woman came forward at the end of the service and said, I'd like to speak with you. I said, certainly. And she said, so you want me to forgive my brother who stole $300,000 from our parents? I said, well, tell me about what happened. She said, my brother was supervising my parents and their finances in their declining health years. And uh, when they passed away and we did the inventory of the estate and all that had taken place, we discovered that he had been siphoning off siphoning off money for years, and we can document that he stole over $300,000. And she said, I turned that over to the prosecuting attorney in our county, and he's been arrested and has been charged and will soon be tried and will likely be convicted of stealing that money from my parents. And you want me to forgive him? I said, exactly. She said, then I guess that means he just gets away scot-free. I said, no, 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 no. You're missing the, you're missing the full point of the message here. Listen closely. I said, forgiveness means you visit him in prison. What he did was a crime against your parents and a crime that society is responsible to stand up and say, that can't be tolerated. Forgiveness is not the absence of consequences inflicted by God or others. Forgiveness is you giving up the right to personal revenge and going and visiting your brother in prison and saying, I know what you did was wrong and you're still my brother and I love you, but I will not take one step to mitigate your consequences because you need to learn from what you did. Let me give you another one. While I'm still a pastor, a man came to me and said, I'd like to become a member of your church. I said, all right, we'd like that. He said, well, you need to understand before you say yes, I'm a convicted sex offender. I said, all right, we still want you to become a member of our church. But I said, you need to understand, if you become a member of our church, 
all the restrictions placed on you by the state of Oregon are still in play when you're on our campus. Forgiveness is we welcome you among us. Accountability is you must maintain responsibility to the standards that have been placed on you. He said, I'll take that. I thank you for at least receiving me as a member. And we did. And he was a productive member of our church, but we never set aside the consequences that were a result of his past actions. Are you tracking with me this morning? You see, forgiveness is not the mitigation of all consequences. No, God and others hold people accountable for their actions, but we release the right to revenge, to get even, to hold it over people, to continue to grind on them, when in reality, the person we're really grinding on is who? Us. Because this is the most significant reason why forgiveness is, such a, is so important in your life, and that is when you forgive others, the person who's really helped is you. Is you. That's why it's possible to forgive someone who's already dead. Do you know there are people who've wronged you that have passed away that you're still carrying around resentment and anger and bitterness toward them for what they did to you? It's possible to forgive them. Who's going to be blessed by that forgiveness? Certainly not them. Who is going to be blessed? You are. Listen, your ex-wife, your business partner, your child, the person who's wronged you, they're not staying awake every night wondering how you feel about it or worrying about what they did to you. They've gone on. You're the one who's carrying it around inside of you. You're the one losing sleep. You're the one with the ulcer. You're the one having to take the medication. You're the one going to the doctor. You're the one who can't find peace of mind. Forgiveness will give you all that back. Take it all away and restore who you are in relationship with God. So this morning, when you forgive others, what you're doing is releasing yourself from the past and the baggage of the past and moving forward freely without that. You know, the seminary does a lot of different things. And one of the things that seminary does is uh, we host Holy Land trips. We, we take people to Holy Land, and we do this for several reasons. Number one, we take students so they can see the land of the Bible. Uh, second, we, we take uh, church friends like you who just want to have a learning experience with a seminary professor to kind of coach you through the process. And quite honestly, we take donors, people who support our school, and we want to show them love and appreciation. We take them with us. So we took one of these trips a few years ago, and the thing got out of hand. I'll just put it that way. We had more people want to go than we really should have taken, so we wound up with two busloads. Two buses. This is another sermon, but I now have a law of Gateway Seminary, and that is one bus. That's it. But on this trip, we had two buses, about 100-plus people. And you know who normally goes on these kind of trips? Well, it's not 20-somethings, let me tell you. They don't have the money or the time. You know who normally goes on these trips? Well, older adults who have the time and, frankly, the money and the interest, that's who normally goes. Well, on this particular trip, we flew into Jordan to see the sights there, and then we were busing into Israel to see the sights there. But here's the problem. You can't drive a bus from Jordan to Israel. They don't trust each other. So in order to change countries, here's what you have to do. You bring the, drive the bus to the Jordanian border. You unload everything. You put it through an airport security-style security, security uh, checkpoint. 
Then you carry it across a bridge. Bridge is about 75 yards across. That's Israel. When you get to the other side, you put everything through a security, a security checkpoint on the Israeli side just in case you made a bomb while you were on the bridge. Okay, these countries do not trust each other. So you have to get screened out of a country and then get screened into a country. And then guess what? You load everything on another bus. Two buses. A lot of old people. Now I'm getting there fast, but a few years ago I was still one of the middle-aged fellows. It suddenly dawned on me that there were a lot of these people who weren't going to be able to get their luggage across that bridge. So I spent a significant part of the morning lugging other people's baggage over that bridge. And it wasn't until about the fourth or fifth trip that I was thinking, some of this stuff just needs to go over the side. (laughs) It does not take this much baggage to go to see the nation of Israel. I've thought about that story a thousand times and laughed about it. But it also forms an analogy of what I'm talking about this morning. How much time are you spending in your life carrying baggage back and forth across a bridge of meaninglessness, weighted down by other people's baggage? We must forgive others, and when we do, we carry these big bags of unforgiveness and we just toss them over the edge. And they are gone forever. And so this morning, my invitation to you is twofold. First of all, will you receive God's forgiveness today? God is holy, you're not. The gap between you is what the Bible calls sin. It's our shortcoming before God. That sin produces guilt in your life. You can try to explain it away by any number of means, but why don't you just take the simple solution this morning and say, God, you're holy and I'm not. My problem is sin. I feel guilty. I'm asking you right now to pour out forgiveness on my life. And on the authority of the Bible and the experience of hundreds of people in this room, I will tell you when you pray that, God will lavish forgiveness on you. Lavish it. And now the second invitation is this. We must forgive others. And so my question is, who do you need to forgive this morning? Who has wronged you in a significant way that's lasted down through these months or even years. You say, well, I'll need to think about that. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because if there's an issue like this active in your life right now, the name is already on the tip of your tongue. You already know who it is. And so what I would ask you to do this morning is to have a transaction with God that sounds something like this. God, this person wronged me. They stole from me. They broke my heart. They took away my innocence. 
They took my money. They took my company. God, this person wronged me. And this morning, out of the forgiveness you've extended to me, I want to go on record with you, God, right now. I forgive this person. I forgive them lavishly. I forgive them entirely. I forgive them even though they don't deserve it. God, I forgive them. And from this moment forward, every time this comes back to my mind, I'm going to pray a prayer like this. God, at North Phoenix Baptist Church, I, in a worship service, I nailed this down. I have forgiven that person and I will not go back. They're forgiven. And I'm asking you to do those two aspects of response this morning. I'm asking you to receive God's forgiveness and I'm asking you to forgive others. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach about the power of forgiveness. Lord, I thank you how you've worked in my life to help me forgive people who wronged me when I was a child, people who hurt me over the years in different ways. Lord, thank you for helping me to learn something about what it means to forgive. Now move around this room and do the same thing for many others. Give them the strength and grace to turn to you and be forgiven. And then give them the courage to pray prayers of forgiveness toward others. And give us grace now to respond. And we ask you for that in Jesus' name.